You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February 23, 2024. I'm Katie from Drake University. Here is our first story, Area Education Agencies. Lawmakers hear AEA bill feedback, and there's a picture of two people, and they're clapping um, during an AEA hearing at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines on Wednesday. Parents and superintendents weigh in on changes. By Caleb McCullough of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Parents of students with disabilities and superintendents and educators had another chance to weigh in on a bill to change the funding and oversight structure of Iowa's area education agencies during an Iowa House public hearing on Wednesday. Several parents said they were worried the changes to Iowa's network that provides support for special education in the state and other services would weaken the options for their children. Some school superintendents, though, said the bill would give them more flexibility over their special education dollars and provide accountability for the AEAs. Esther Huston of West Des Moines, who said she has a child who uses AEA services, said increasing funding to schools and AEAs would be a better way to address Iowa's education issues. Why are we here, she said. Why are we trying to fix something that's not broken? It's not broken. If anything, you need to fix the funding issues that my kid can't get services readily because you don't fund them. What does the bill do? Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. The services are largely funded by property taxes and federal special education dollars. House File 2612 would allow schools to retain the state funding that now goes to the AEAs for special education, media, and other services, beginning in the 2025-26 school year. It would also bring much of the oversight of AEAs under the Department of Education. House Republicans proposed the legislation after blocking a bill proposed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds early in the session, which would have made more dramatic changes to the agencies. Reynolds said the bill was necessary to address lagging test scores for students with disabilities in Iowa. Under the House bill, Districts would have to use the special education funds with the AEAs, but they could spend the other dollars with the AEAs or with another party, like a private company. It differs significantly from Reynolds' original proposal, which would have allowed districts to spend special education dollars outside the AEAs. The Senate version of the bill, which has passed out of a committee, contains a similar provision. Beyond funding changes, the House bill would bring the AEAs under the Department of Education and create a state, new state division of special education to oversee them. The division would be staffed with 58 new state employees who would handle oversight and federal and state compliance for educating students with disabilities. The bill would move the AEA governing boards to an advisory capacity and require state approval of AEA budgets. The salary for AEA administrators would be capped the average salary of all superintendents in the district served by the AEA. The bill would also establish a 10-member task force to study the AEAs, led by the legislative leaders of both parties. The group would assess and make recommendations related to the property owned by the AEAs, the services they provide, 
the accountability and oversight measures in place, the organizational structure of special education in Iowa, and a timeline for staffing modifications at the AEAs. The bill passed out of a committee last week with Republicans in support and Democrats opposed, and is eligible for a vote by the full House chamber. Parents say AEAs provide a vital service. Though the bill would still require schools to use the AEAs for special education support, parents of students who spoke during the hearing told members of the House Education Committee they worried the changes would lead to inequities and worse outcomes across the state. David Tilley, who is Deputy Director of the Iowa Department of Education from 2012 to 2020, said lawmakers should pause the advancement of the bill, which he said could place students' futures in jeopardy. Tilly, who has a daughter with a disability, said a parent learning their child has a disability is one of the most profound experiences of their lifetime. He said lawmakers should not make any changes without first commissioning a study of the AEAs. The only defensible course here is a study before making any changes to the AEAs, he said. Iowa kids are not a partisan issue. To be clear, a sufficient, credible study has not been done at this point to support any of the AEA bills. Other parents who supported the bill said they were dissatisfied with the services their school district and AEA were providing to their students with disabilities and said they believed the bill could allow for more personalized attention to students with disabilities. Superintendents say they want control of special ed dollars. Several school superintendents spoke in favor of the bill, saying they would like to control the special education dollars dedicated to their students. The superintendent said the bill would allow them to keep track of their special education funding and have a better accounting of where the money is going. Autumna Community School District Superintendent Mike McGrory said AEAs are necessary and provide valuable services and he does not want to see them dismantled. But he said the bill would give schools a seat at the table in determining what services their students need. Our school districts should be equal parts in determining what the schools and the students need, whether or not things are working or need to adapt, he said. It's time for reform. Some superintendents asked House lawmakers to return the bill to Reynolds' original proposal, allowing schools to spend their special education dollars outside the AEA to educate students with disabilities. David Smith, the superintendent of the Spirit Lake Community School District, told lawmakers that the current system has not been working for the district. The system has been in place for a long time, and where we live, it doesn't work, he said. It hasn't worked, and we don't think it's going to work in the future. Mark Lane, the superintendent of Woodward Granger Community School District, opposed the bill and said he does not support the changes. While he acknowledged some things can change in the AEA systems, he said the pace of the changes, without proper evaluation by stakeholders and experts, is doomed to failure. Committee chair proposes more conversations. Representative Skylar Wheeler, a Republican from Hull who chairs the House Education Committee, said the input was consistent with what he had heard in past meetings and said the House would continue to have conversations on the bill. Though the Senate has a different bill, Wheeler said he was focused on working on the House bill and building Republican support for the measure. My focus right now is on the caucus, making sure that whatever it is, if we come to an agreement on something, that we have the ability to get the votes for, he said. I don't know what the Senate is doing. We have conversations here and there, but they're going to focus on what they're going to focus on. We're going, on, we're going to focus on what we want to focus on over here. Rep Representative Sue Cahill, a Democrat from Marshalltown, said she does not want to make big changes to the AEAs, 
based on complaints from certain school districts or individuals. She reiterated the call from Democrats to hold a study on the AEAs before making changes. The thing we need to keep in mind is the students, she said. We are now kind of talking about a lot of organizational issues. We can take care of that without disrupting the structure and the services that we provide to the students. And on the left, there's a picture of Representative Skylar Wheeler and Representative Sharon Sue Streckman listening to community members speak during an AEA hearing at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines on Wednesday. And you can see there's cameras and they're just kind of sitting at tables listening. Senate has alternative proposal. Senate Republicans advanced a bill out of committee last week that more closely aligns with Reynolds' original proposal, allowing school districts to contract with outside entities to provide special education support. Under the bill, Senate File 2386, schools would receive 90% of their state special education funding, while the AEAs would receive the other 10%. The school districts could spend that money on the AEA services or contract with an outside party for the services. They would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities. The bill would direct 60% of the funding for media services and education services, which are paid for by property taxes, to the school districts, who could then contract with AEAs or another party for those services. The AEAs would retain the other 40% of the funding. It would also create a division of special education, directing the Department of Education to work with the AEAs on a plan to transfer employees focused on oversight to the department. Teamsters truckers in Circle Capital protesting proposal. And in this picture, there's a group of people in the background that ha they have a sign that says, kill the union busting. And there's a man standing in the foreground at a microphone. Um, and the caption is, Jesse Case, Secretary Treasurer and Principal Officer of Teamsters Local 238 in Iowa, speaks during a news conference held as labor union members protest proposed legislation that would impact public workers' collective bargaining rights at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines on Wednesday. By Aaron Murphy, Liga's at Des Moines Bureau. Truck and car horns blared as they drove laps Wednesday around the Iowa Capitol complex as union members and advocates rallied in opposition to a proposal that would impact Iowa workers' collective bargaining rights. Two semis emblazoned with graphics for the Teamsters Union were a part of the caravan of at least two dozen vehicles that circled the complex for roughly an hour. An Iowa Teamsters leader addressed reporters on the Capitol steps. The proposed legislation, Senate File 2374, would decertify a public worker collective bargaining unit if the public employer fails to submit to the state a list of union-eligible workers. Labor advocates have called it a union-busting bill because it placed bargaining units' fate in the hands of the employer. Union members compare the proposal with a 2017 law that stripped Iowa public workers of most of their collective bargaining rights. When things are broke, don't fix it. Jesse Case, Secretary-Treasurer and Principal Officer of Teamsters Local 238 in Iowa, said during his remarks to reporters, the public sector bargaining law wasn't broken in 2017, and they broke it. And now they want to break it some more. Well, guess what? We've had enough. The Teamsters Union has six local chapters in Iowa, Case said, representing roughly 12,000 members in law enforcement, freight, warehouses, county road crews, public works, and school bus drivers. Shortly after the new legislation was introduced, 
Case recorded a video in which he said Teamsters unions may engage in rolling strikes. During Wednesday's events at the Iowa Capitol, Case said Teamsters members also are considering other options. Case claimed that some Teamsters members across the state have been working while technically off-duty, and as an example, said some public workers are answering work calls even though they are off the clock and not on call. Case said if state lawmakers pass the latest legislation on collective bargaining, unions will tell those public workers, for example, to stop taking those off-duty calls. Our members are not obligated to go above and beyond the call of duty while they're under attack from lawmakers, Case said. And I'm telling you right now, the next time there's a union-busting bill signed into law, people across the state will start feeling the effects of service. The bill was introduced by Senator Adrian Dickey, a Republican who is president of a trucking company, Dickey Transport, in Packwood. Dickey and Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, who ran the bill through the first steps of the legislation, legislative process, have said it is needed because many public bargaining units are not submitting lists of union-eligible workers and thus not holding annual recertification elections, both of which are required by the 2017 law. From 2020 through 2022, the state did not receive information on union-eligible employees in more than 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified by a vote of its eligible workers. According to the Public Employment Relations Board, the state board that manages public employer worker relations. That means in 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified, no election was conducted, according to the board. Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer, said that typically happens when the public employer is certain a bargaining unit would recertify, has a good working relationship with the unit and its workers, and thus does not feel compelled to force the election. Dickey last year also led the effort on legislation that limited damages and lawsuits related to crashes involving commercial truck drivers. Dickey said that bill also shifted liability in such crashes from commercial truck drivers to their employer. It's disappointing I get no gratitude for providing real help to the teamsters, and instead, I'm attacked for simply proposing public employers and unions follow the law, Dickey said in a statement emailed by Senate Republican Caucus staff. SF-2374 is nothing more than a technical cleanup to legislation passed in 2017, Dickey said in his statement. Last year, 41% of Iowa public sector workers that had union representation did not have a voice due to a loophole in the legislation passed in 2017. If the public sector employer and the union are following the law, nothing will change for them. The legislation has cleared the Iowa Senate's Workforce Committee, which Dickey chairs. It is eligible for debate by the full Iowa Senate. It must also be approved by the Iowa House and signed by Governor Kim Reynolds before it would become law. Representative Dave Dale, a Republican from Nevada who chairs the House's Labor and Workforce Committee, said lawmakers have been aware of the lack of recertification elections by bargaining units for years and that it has been a concern for Republicans who passed the 2017 law. Dale said it will be up to Republican House leaders whether to take the bill if it passed out of Senate. Case said Teamsters members plan to continue their opposition to the legislation, including by conducting similar caravans and news conferences in Dickey's district in southeast Iowa. We're not taking it anymore, Case said. This is the beginning of an escalation, and it either stops or it continues to escalate. But we are not going to do it laying down. We're standing up. We're fighting back. We're united. And this is just the beginning.
and there is a picture um, on the left you can see the top of the Iowa Capitol uh, with the sky as a backdrop and there is a plane um, pulling a banner that says kill Senator Dickey's union busting bill and this was a plane that flew overhead the Iowa Capitol um, as the labor union members protested the proposed legislation that would impact their collective bargaining rights on Wednesday at the Capitol. Now to move on to some national news. Two more IVF providers pause treatment in Alabama. Montgomery, Alabama. Two more in vitro fertilization providers in Alabama paused parts of their treatment Thursday, sending patients scrambling to make other plans after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are legally considered children. Alabama Fertility Services said in a statement that it has made the impossibly difficult decision to hold new IVF treatments due to the legal risk to our clinic and our embryologists. The Center for Reproductive Medicine at Mobile Infirmary also paused IVF treatment. The decisions come a day after the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System said it paused IVF treatments so it could evaluate whether patients or doctors could face criminal charges or punitive damages. Now moving on to some news in the Middle East. Cease fire back on table. Mediators report some signs of progress as U.S. envoy visits Israel. And this is written by Joseph Federman, Sammy Magdi, and Wafa Sharafa of the Associated Press. Jerusalem. International efforts to broker a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas appeared to gain new momentum Thursday, as the White House said a visit by a senior envoy with Israeli leaders was going well, and other mediators reported encouraging signs from the warring parties. The new signs of progress came ahead of a summit this weekend in Paris, where mediators are expected to offer a new proposal. The U.S., Egypt, and Qatar have struggled for weeks to find a formula that could halt Israel's devastating offensive in Gaza, but now face an unofficial deadline as the Muslim holy month of Ramadan approaches. White House Mideast envoy Brett McGurk held talks throughout the day with Israeli leaders and families of Israeli hostages held by Hamas. Spokesman John Kirby said the talks were constructive. The initial indications we're getting from Brett are these discussions are going well, Kirby said. A Western diplomat involved in that effort said both sides want applause. What we have heard from our partners is that they are willing to give concessions, she said speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss closed-door diplomacy. Time is pressing them. In new fighting, Israeli strikes killed more than 70 people in southern and central Gaza, Palestinian health officials said Thursday. In the Israeli-occupied West Bank, three Palestinian gunmen opened fire on morning traffic Thursday at a highway checkpoint, killing one man and wounding five others, Israeli police said. Israel declared war after Hamas militants stormed across the border October 7th. An estimated 1,200 people, mostly civilians, died during the raid, and militants took 250 people captive, according to Israeli authorities. The Israeli mil military response has left more than 29,000 Palestinians dead, caused widespread destruction, displaced an estimated 80,000 of Gaza's population, and fueled a humanitarian disaster. About half of the hostages were released during a week-long ceasefire in November. About 100 hostages remain in captivity, in addition to the bodies of 30 others. 
Israel demands the release of the remaining hostages as part of any pause, but has vowed to press ahead with the offensive until Hamas' military and governing capabilities are destroyed. Hamas wants an end to the war, a full withdrawal of troops, and the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners Israel is holding. Nalvani Mom, officials want burial to be secret. U.S. Justice Department arrests and indicts Russian businessmen. Associated Press The mother of Russia's late opposition leader, Alexei Nalvani, said Thursday that she has seen her son's body and that she is resisting strong pressure by authorities to agree to a secret burial outside the public eye. Yudmila Nalvanaya said investigators allowed her to see her son's body in the city morgue. She said she reaffirmed the demand to give Nalvani's body to her and protested what she described as authorities trying to force her to agree to a secret burial. Nalvani's spokesman, Kira Yarmish, said on social media that his mother was also shown a medical certificate stating that the 47-year-old politician died of natural causes. Yarmish didn't specify what those were. Across the ocean in San Francisco, U.S. President Joe Biden met with Nalvani's widow, Yulia Nalvanaya, and 20-year-old daughter, Dasha, and expressed condolences for their devastating loss. Meanwhile, the Justice Department announced a series of arrests and indictments Thursday against Russian businessmen and their facilitators in five separate federal cases that span New York, Florida, Georgia, and the District of Columbia. Moving back to some national news. Authorities in Vegas arrest FBI source again. Former informant is accused of lying about Ukrainian bribery plot. From the Associated Press. Las Vegas, a former FBI informant who claims to have links to Russian intelligence and is charged with lying about a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden's family, was again taken into custody Thursday in Las Vegas, two days after a judge released him, his attorney said. Alexander Smirnov was arrested during a meeting Thursday morning at his lawyer's law offices in downtown Las Vegas. The arrest came after prosecutors appealed the judge's ruling allowing Smirnov, 43, who holds dual U.S.-Israeli citizenship, to be released with a GPS monitor ahead of trial. He is charged with making a false statement and creating a false and fictitious record. Attorneys David Kasanoff and Richard Schoenfeld said in a statement they requested an immediate hearing on his detention and will again push for his release. Prosecutors say Smirnov falsely told his FBI handler that executives from the Ukrainian energy company Bursima paid President Biden and Hunter Biden $5 million each around 2015. The claim became central to the Republican impeachment inquiry of President Biden in Congress. Trump's legal debts mount. Rulings against the former president top a half billion dollars. Will he have to pay? By Jake Offenharts of the Associated Press. And uh, there's a picture of presidential candidate Donald Trump, and he's kind of holding out his hands. He has his mouth open. Uh, he's speaking. So it looks like he's giving a speech February 16th at his estate in Palm Beach, Florida. And this is following a ruling in the New York civil fraud trial. Donald Trump's legal debts may now exceed a half billion dollars. A New York judge ordered Trump and his companies to pay $355 million in fines, plus interest, after ruling February 16th that he had manipulated his net worth in financial statements. The stiff penalty comes just weeks after Trump was ordered to pay $83.3 million 
to the writer E. Jean Carroll for damaging her reputation after she accused him of sexual assault. A separate jury last year awarded Carroll $5 million from Trump for sexual abuse and defamation. Add interest payments on top of that, and the judgments could deal a staggering blow to the personal fortune that remains core to Trump's political appeal. He has adamantly denied wrongdoing and pledged to appeal, a process that could take months or even years. In the meantime, here's what we know about what Trump owes, whether he'll have to pay up, and what comes next. How much money does Trump owe now? The verdict in the civil fraud trial requires Trump to pay interest on some of the deal profits he had been ordered to give up. New York Attorney General Letitia James, who brought the case, said the interest amount totaled $99 million and would continue to increase every single day until it is paid. Between the February 16th ruling and the two judgments in Carroll's case, Trump would be on the hook for about $542 million. Trump owes an additional $110,000 for refusing to comply with a subpoena in the civil fraud case and $15,000 for repeatedly disparaging the judge's law clerk in violation of a gag order. The judge also ordered both of Trump's sons to pay $4 million apiece. Trump's court-ordered debts don't end there. In January, he was ordered to pay nearly $400,000 in legal fees to the New York Times after suing the newspaper unsuccessfully. He is currently appealing a judgment of $938,000 against him and his attorney for filing what a judge described as a frivolous lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. Can he get any of these judgments reduced? It's not uncommon for the size of judgments, particularly high-dollar amounts, to be reduced on appeals. The appeal in Trump's civil fraud case will go before an intermediate-level court first. If it returns an unfavorable ruling, Trump could try to get the case taken up by New York's top appellate court, though legal experts say that is unlikely. How quickly does Trump have to pay? Trump has already deposited $5 million owed to Carroll for the first defamation case into a court-controlled account, along with an additional $500,000 in interest required by New York law. Carroll will not have access to the money until the appeals process plays out. He may soon be forced to do the same for the $83.3 million judgment in the second Carroll verdict. Alternatively, he could secure a bond and pay only a portion up front, though that option would come with some interest and fees and likely require some form of collateral. Trump would have to find a financial institution willing to front him the money. In a civil fraud case, it will be up to the courts to decide how much Trump must put up as he mounts his appeal. And he may be required to pay the full sum immediately after the appellate court rules, which could come as soon as this summer, according to University of Michigan law professor Will Thomas. New York's judicial system has shown a willingness to move quickly on some of these Trump issues, Thomas said. When we hear from the first appellate court, there's a point where money is almost certainly going to change hands. Can Trump afford to pay? Trump has claimed he's worth over $10 billion. Most estimates, including an assessment by the New York Attorney General, put that figure closer to $2 billion. In his 2021 statement of financial condition, Trump said he had just under $300 million in cash and cash equivalents. He has since made a number of sales, including his New York golf course and his Washington, D.C. hotel, and may also soon get a windfall when his social media company, Truth Social goes public. But even with those income streams, it's unclear whether Trump and his family members have enough cash on hand to pay all the money they now owe. Could he use campaign contributions to pay? 
Federal election law prohibits the use of campaign funds for personal use. But the rules are far murkier when it comes to tapping political action committees, or PACs, for a candidate's expenses. Over the past two years, Trump's Save America PAC, his presidential campaign, and his other fundraising organizations have devoted $76.7 million to legal fees. Campaign experts expect Trump will try to spend PAC money to defray the cost of his judgments in some way. Can he or his business declare bankruptcy? Under the judge's ruling, Trump would still be liable to pay even if the Trump organization declares bankruptcy. If Trump personally declared bankruptcy, the enforcement of the judgment against him would be paused. But political commentators say such a drastic step, step is unlikely. Despite the fact that several of his previous companies have gone bankrupt, Trump has repeatedly bragged about the fact that he has never, personally, declared bankruptcy. What if Trump refuses to pay? Legally, Trump would face the same consequences as any American refusing to pay a legal judgment, including the possibility of having his assets seized and his wages garnished. The judge overseeing Trump's civil fraud case appointed an additional monitor to oversee the Trump Organization's finances, finding they could not be trusted to follow the law. In the event that Trump refused to hand over payments, the courts would have additional discretion to go after Trump and his businesses. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February 23rd, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Katie from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. We have one last national news story before we move on to some sports. Court favors school in hair case. Punishment for black student didn't violate new law, judge says. And there's a picture that goes along with this story. There's three people. On the left is a woman She is wearing a cowboy hat, and she has on a blue jacket. And she's looking at the teenaged boy in the center who is speaking into microphones, and he has a black jacket on. And on the right is a state representative. He's wearing a blue jacket, and he has his hand on the boy's shoulder. And there's some people um, in the background looking at the boy as he's talking. And this uh, situation occurred as people made comments before a hearing regarding the violation of a school dress code policy. And this is written by Juan A. Lozano for the Associated Press. Anahawk, Texas, a black high school student's months-long punishment by his Texas school district for refusing to change his hairstyle does not violate a new state law that prohibits race-based hair discrimination, a judge ruled on Thursday. Daryl George, 18, is a junior and has not been in his regular classes at his Houston area high school since August 31st because his school district, Barbers Hill, says he is violating its policy limiting the length of boys' hair. The district filed a lawsuit arguing George's long hair, which he wears in tied and twisted locks on top of his head, violates its dress code policy because it would fall below his shirt collar, eyebrows, or earlobes when let down. The district has said other students with locks comply with this length policy. After just a few hours of testimony, State District Judge Chap Kane III ruled in favor of the school district, saying its ongoing discipline of George over the length of his hair 
is legal under the Crown Act. For most of the school year, George has either served in-school suspension at Barbers Hill High School in Mont Bellevue or spent time at an off-site disciplinary program. Dozens of people turned out for the one-day trial in Anahawk, outside Houston. The Crown Act, which took effect in September, but prohibits race-based hair discrimination and bars employees and schools from penalizing people because of hair texture or protective hairstyles, including afros, braids, locks, twists, or bantu knots. Allie Booker, Daryl George's attorney, presented only two witnesses, Darisha George and Democratic State Representative Ron Reynolds, one of the co-authors of the Crown Act. Reynolds testified that hair length was not specifically discussed when the Crown Act was proposed, but length was inferred with the very nature of the style. Anyone familiar with braids, locks, twists, knows it requires a certain amount of length, Reynolds said. In a paid ad that ran in January in the Houston Chronicle, Barber's Hill Superintendent Greg Poole wrote that districts with a traditional dress code are safer and have higher academic performance and that being an American requires conformity. Now moving on to some sports. Welcome to Indiana basketball. Hoosier Gym, home of Hickory Huskers, st still resonates with basketball fans. And there's a picture of the gym. You can see um, the logo on the ground in the center. It's a big H for Hickory Huskers. Uh, there's an American flag on the wall and the basketball hoop. You can see some awards on the walls as well. This is written by Tim Reynolds for the Associated Press. Knightstown, Indiana. The court is the same one where Jimmy Chitwood played. The locker room is exactly the same as it was when Norman Dale coached. The wall separating the bleachers from the floor is still there. Things change. The Hoosier gym doesn't. About 35 miles east of Indianapolis is the little town of Knightstown which most people probably aren't too familiar with. Basketball fans, however, are likely very aware of the place that brings more people into the town than anything else. A small brick building that the Hickory Huskers of the movie Hoosiers called home. It's still there, still iconic nearly four decades after the film's release, hosting more than 50,000 visitors and dozens of high school games each year. When you get that many people coming here every year, said Larry Lovell, one of the volunteers that keeps the gym running, you know you're doing something right. The movie, ranked as the number one sports film of all time released by the Associated Press in 2020, was released in 1986. Gene Hackman starred as Coach Dale, a man who was given a second chance at coaching after his first one ended for striking one of his players years earlier. Hackman famously thought the movie would end his career. He didn't think it would be a success. He was very, very wrong. The Tale of the Huskers, a small-town team that in the movie version took on the big city South Bend Central in the 1952 Indiana State Championship and won in a David versus Goliath story with Chitwood, a sharpshooter who initially didn't want to play for the team. Hitting the buzzer beater to win the state title still resonates. It's an underdog story, a Cinderella story, one loosely based on the real-life story of a small school Milan winning Indiana's 1954 state championship. It's about basketball, obviously, said Brad Long, who plays Buddy Walker in the film. But it's about redemption, and any time you have a movie where the underdog does well and overachieves, 
It makes people feel good about themselves. That formula always works. It still does. The movie plays on a loop in the lobby of the building, which was Knightstown High's home gym until 1966. The court, which is meticulously maintained, has been down since 1936, and there isn't a single dead spot to thwart dribblers. Down the steep staircase at the far end is the Hickory Locker Room. People have wanted to repaint it over the years, but have smartly resisted, because the faded white walls and scuffed-up gray floor is how it looked in the movie, and so it shall remain. There have been some upgrades, of course. The backboards are glass, not wood like they used to be in the film. There are digital scoreboards. Electric heat was added to the locker room. The playing surface was slightly widened to make it conform to current standards. And that's about it. I've been maintaining this gym since 1998, Lovell said. It's our pride and joy. The gym is in Knightstown, though the movie isn't about the town. The school, enrollment of nearly 400, not quite the 64 that Hickory famously had in the movie, goes by the nickname Panthers, not Huskers. The Panthers don't play their home games in the Hoosier gym, and there has been a time or two where the gym and the school have disagreed on where some items, like a long-abandoned victory bell, belong. It's displayed at the gym and a room filled with Knightstown memorabilia and not artifacts from the movie. The place remains open largely because fans keep visiting. It has been the site of everything from political rallies to fundraising dinners. The court can be rented for $100 an hour, and groups come from all over to play or just get shots up. It's always an honor to be back. Actor Maris Villanis, who played Chitwood in the movie, said when the team was assembled in Knightstown for a 35th anniversary gathering a couple years ago. Of the many lines in the movie that resonate, one, welcome to Indiana basketball, the line uttered by Dale as he fixes his tie before stepping onto the court before his first game as coach, might stand out a bit more than most others. Thing is, the court isn't just about Indiana basketball anymore. High school teams from across the country come to play there now, and from that was born a new tradition. They leave a jersey behind, all signed by players. They hang in the locker room and other parts of the building, more than 300 of them now in a collection that's constantly growing. Some leave little notes behind on the jerseys as well. Kale Leitch of Talawanta High in Ohio hit a shot at the buzzer to give his team a 48-46 win there last year. It's called Game Winner under his name and number. I envisioned it, Leitch told the Southwest Ohio Sports Daily after his winning shot. There have been more famous visitors as well. LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony were there once as their NBA career were starting. NBA careers were starting, posing as midcourt with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Chris Mullen has gotten shots up there, while Greg Oden and Mike Conley Jr. played there as high schoolers. The movie even got talked about at NBA All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis. Commissioner Adam Silver and number one overall pick Victor Wembenyama were on stage together at the Tech Summit discussing how artificial intelligence can change the way people view the game. Part of their presentation included a clip from Hoosiers, a movie that Wembenyama had just been introduced to. It's based in Indiana, Silver told Wembenyama. Parts of it were filmed right down the street here. Maybe fittingly, there's still the whole David versus Goliath thing going on, just like in the movie. Newcastle, like Knightstown, part of Henry County, 
but was the biggest high school basketball arena in the country, the 8,400-seat Newcastle Fieldhouse. The Hoosier gym might, full, might hold 400 tops. They'll always tell us that they've got the world's largest high school gym, Laval said. And I said, isn't that amazing? In the same county we've got the world's largest and the world's most famous. And there's two more pictures that go along with this story. The first one is a picture of actor Gene Hackman, who plays Coach Norman Dale in the movie Hoosiers, and he's talking to his team. And the bottom picture is a picture of the locker room at the Hoosier gym, which is used by the Hickory Huskers in the movie Hoosiers. Um, There's some jerseys on the wall, and you can see some of the benches where the players would sit, and there's a light at the top. And um, the room looks definitely a little out of date, um, but you can tell they haven't really done anything since the filming of the movie to sort of keep that nostalgia. Now moving on to some baseball. Pirates ace cashes in. Keller to sign $77 million deal. Mets shut down all-star pitcher Sanga by the Associated Press. And there's two pictures that go along with this article. The first one is um, two players from the Pirates, and they're um, about to shake hands, looks like. Uh, it says they're agreeing to a five-year contract extension with ace right handler Mitch Keller. And then there's a picture of a Dodgers player wearing the new uniform, and that's one of the stories that we're going to read about. One National League all-star right handler is getting the biggest contract ever for a Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher, and another is expected to miss the start of the season for the New York Mets. Mitch Keller and the Pirates have agreed to a new $77 million five-year contract, according to an AP source. The deal is pending a physical and not yet final. The new contract will begin this season and replace a $5,442,500 one-year agreement reached last month. The 27-year-old Keller likely will make his second opening day start in a row for Pittsburgh. Keller is coming off a career year in which he led Pirates starters in wins, ERA, whip, innings pitched, and set a franchise record for strikeouts in a season by a righty and tied for most starts. He was a first-time All-Star, like Mets right-hander Kodai Senga. Senga was shut down at the Mets camp and likely will start the season on the injured list because of a shoulder strain. Mets president of baseball operations, David Stearns, said Thursday that an MRI was done after Senga twice expressed having shoulder fatigue following throwing sessions in camp. Stearns described the strain in the back of the pitcher's right shoulder as moderate. Uniform debacle. MLB's new uniform reveal has not gone very well. Now the rampant criticism has moved below the belt. Major League Baseball Players Association Deputy Executive Director Bruce Meyer confirmed on Thursday that the organization is relaying concerns from players to MLB about the new pants, which are somewhat see-through. The complaints, first reported by ESPN, are part of a broader scorn for the new uniforms. Commissioner Rob Manfred previously said he expects criticisms to fade, but that was before the the below-the-belt criticisms. Briefly, Padres. There was a moment of silence for Peter Seidler before San Diego's first spring training game. Seidler, the team's owner and chairman, died in November at age 63. 
San Diego hosted the Los Angeles Dodgers in Peoria, Arizona, in the only game Thursday. Those teams got an early start because they will open the regular season against each other on March 20th in Seoul, South Korea. Marlins. According to an AP source, former AL battling champion, batting champion Tim Anderson agreed to a one-year contract with Miami. The deal for the shortstop is pending a physical. The agreement is worth $5 million, according to ESPN. Anderson is the Marlins' first big free agent addition of the offseason. Yankees Alex Verdugo is now with New York after being traded by the Red Sox, but insists he has no hard feelings toward Alex Cora, his former manager, who benched him twice in Boston last year. Verdugo was first benched by Cora on June 8th for not hustling between first and second base on a grounder a night earlier, and again August 5th for arriving late to the ballpark. Tigers Infielder Gio Urshela agreed to a $1.5 million one-year contract with Detroit, a move that figures to create competition at third base with Zach McKinstry, Matt Beerling, and Andy Ibanez. The 32-year-old Colombian hit .299 with two homers and 24 RBIs in 62 games last season for the Los Angeles Angels. Brewers Gary Sanchez is guaranteed $3 million in his one-year contract with Milwaukee, and he can earn an additional $4 million this season, depending on the condition of his right wrist, and $14 million over two seasons. Diamondbacks Major League Baseball will produce Arizona's games for a second straight season. The D-backs had their games produced by MLB for the final two and a half months of last season after a federal bankruptcy judge granted a motion for Diamond Sports to reject its rights agreement. Dominican Republic Albert Pujols was hired as manager of Los Leonones del Escogido, a club in the Dominican Republic Professional League. The 44-year-old Pujols hit 703 homers, fourth most in history, over 22 major league seasons, and its 2,218 RBIs are the second most all-time, trailing only Henry Aaron. He retired in 2022. South Korea, Hyun Jin Ryu is returning to South Korea to play for his former team after pitching 10 seasons in the major leagues. The Hanwha Eagles in the Korean Baseball Association said Thursday that the 36-year-old signed an eight-year contract. The $12.8 million deal makes him the league's most expensive player. Now for some brief basketball. Find. The Southeastern Conference fined LSU $100,000 in connection to fans running onto the court after the Tigers' victory over number 17, Kentucky. The fine was for LSU's first offense under the SEC's policy that states fans are not allowed in the competition arena at any time. Suspended. Alabama forward Mohamed Wegg was suspended for one game by the SEC for elbowing Florida's Alex Condon in the back of the head. Clark. Number 14, Indiana frustrated Iowa superstar Caitlin Clark in an 86-69 win over the fourth-ranked Hawkeyes on Thursday night in Bloomington, Indiana. Clark, the NCAA women's career scoring leader, scored 24 points to bring her total to 3,593. 57 away from Lynette Woodard's major women's college scoring record, with three games left in the regular season. Now for some entertainment. Franklin's time to shine. And there's some pictures 
um, with this article that include some frames from the new Peanuts TV show. So there's Franklin, um, and he's a, he's a young boy with Snoopy, who's the beagle dog, and Woodstock, the little yellow bird. And there's another picture of a bunch of the kids, and they're racing go-karts around a track. And another picture of Lucy um, in her psychiatric health booth. It says the doctor is in, and uh, Franklin is going to talk to her. And then there's another picture of Franklin looking out the window of Carr. It says he's the new kid in town in this new show. So this story was written by Mark Kennedy for the Associated Press. The mild-mannered Franklin, the first black character in the Peanuts comic strip, gets to shine in his own animated Apple TV special this month in a story about friendship. Franklin is a newcomer who bonds with Charlie Brown and is welcome to the Peanuts universe in Snoopy Presents Welcome Home, Franklin, which is now streaming. Co-writer Rob Armstrong, the cartoonist behind the Jumpstart strip, says he's building on the blueprints that Peanuts creator Charles Schulz left. Whenever you start with good ingredients, you have to work hard to make a bad cake out of it, he says. Race is never explicitly mentioned, but Armstrong and co-writer Scott Montgomery make a subtle nod when Franklin surveys the kids in his new town and remarks, one thing was for sure, there was a lack of variety in this place. I never wanted to come off preachy or anything, but it needed to be handled in the same way that I handled it in Jumpstart, says Armstrong. I don't come out and call people anything. I let the characters participate in a problem-solving process. The portrait of Franklin that emerges is of a boy who likes baseball and outer space, is good with his hands, and listens to Stevie Wonder, Little Richard, James Brown, and John Coltrane. When he arrives in town, he's tired of a life of constantly moving, since his father's military job takes them from location to location. I have lived in a lot of different places, but none that I can call home, he says. But his introduction to the Peanuts gang initially goes poorly. He mistakes Lucy's psychiatric booth for a lemonade stand, and he freaks Linus out by picking a pumpkin from his patch. If I didn't know better, I'd swear I was in the twilight zone, Franklin says. Every time he's moved, he's had to learn how to make friends quick, and that meant he didn't feel like he could ever be his authentic self, said director and story editor Raymond S. Percy. So when he comes to this town, his normal tricks don't work because these are kind of weird kids. Franklin made his first appearance in the newspaper strip on July 31, 1968, prompted by a request from a school teacher for Schultz to integrate his comic strip world in the wake of the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Schultz introduced him by having Franklin return Charlie Brown's wayward beach ball one day by the sea. It was a historical meeting and a statement. Many public beaches, like other public facilities, such as schools, swimming pools, theaters, and restaurants, segregated at the time. The new Apple TV Plus special recreates that first meeting, with Franklin returning Charlie Brown's errant beach ball and then the two building a sandcastle together. To have this very simple idea of two children who don't know about racism, having fun playing at the beach, building something together, I just think that's so smart, said Percy. Franklin and Charlie Brown soon enter a soapbox derby competition, and their friendship is tested before a deep bond is forged. They're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but we can get through the rough spots together as friends, Franklin says. What I really like about the special is you're getting a chance to see this friendship kind of grow in real time, in the way that real friendships do, said Percy.
who has directed animated projects with The Simpsons, Mickey Mouse, and The Minions. As usual for a Peanut show, music plays a key role. Original music by Jeff Morrow leans into sophisticated jazz, and it nods to Franklin, Barry's Johnny B. Good, Nothing From Nothing by Billy Preston and some Coltrane playing on a ju jukebox. Armstrong has also used the special to create some misperceptions about the 1973 classic, A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. In one special, Franklin sits by himself in one, on one side of the Thanksgiving table, leading some to suggest he's not been fully embraced. In the new special, Franklin is specifically asked to come sit with his new pals on their side during a pizza party celebration. Armstrong says he started with that scene and then had to figure out how, to, how the gang got there. The writers came up with a soapbox derby. We needed something that was very highly action-oriented and packed with great risk. It had to be a competition, Armstrong says. The special has plenty of lessons for kids and adults. Winning isn't everything. Friendships can be messy, but rewarding. And be your authentic self. What I'd like people to get out of it is that you don't have to be something different for other people. Being yourself is what's going to bring the right people into your lives, says Percy. Armstrong, who grew up revering Schultz, has a deep connection to Franklin. He became a cartoonist and a friend to Schultz. It was Schultz himself who asked the younger cartoonist if he would lend his last name to the character. So to have him years later spotlight Franklin, Franklin in a TV special seems almost divine intervention. Sometimes a miracle happens, says Armstrong. If someone's got a better answer, I'd love to hear it. I'm just convinced that sometimes God gets involved. And this is that. Oh, that was such a sweet story. I hope you enjoyed today's readings of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Katie from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you so much for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a blessed day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.